Chapter 16 of St. Charles Borromeo, A Sketch of the Reforming Cardinal, by Louise M. Stackpole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter 16, Church versus State. The archbishop had been but a short time amongst them, when the Milanese noticed that he had grown holier and more austere. His prayers were more frequent and more prolonged, his penances more severe. Indeed, his historians remark that each time he returned from the Eternal City, he was more saintly, more seraphic. It seemed as though from that blessed place, that is hallowed by the blood of numberless martyrs and sanctified by the purity and celestial ardor of so many saints, Charles Borromeo gained fresh fervor and strength to tread the difficult and thorny path that grew daily more difficult and more thorny. To suffer woes which hope thinks infinite, to forgive wrongs darker than death or night, to defy power which seems omnipotent, to love and bear, to hope till hopes creates, from its own wreck, the thing it contemplates. Neither to change, nor falter, nor repent. This, like thy glory, Titan, is to be good, great, and joyous, beautiful, and free. This is alone life, joy, empire, and victory. Charles was a Christian Titan, who was to war not only with the powers of darkness, but with the temporal power given to despotic and ignorant men. He was to wage a deathless war against the pride and pomp of the world in behalf of the rights of Holy Church. He had already proved himself her unconquerable champion. Once more he was about to enter the lists and combat successive tyrannical governors. Charles had scarcely arrived in Milan when the storm once more broke forth. On the death of the Duke de Albuquerque, Philip II had appointed Don Alvarez de Sandes as governor pro tem. He was an arrogant and stupid man, and his foolish head was quite turned by the grandeur of his exalted position. Dressed in a little brief authority, most ignorant of what he is most assured, his glassy essence, like an angry ape, plays such fantastic tricks before high heaven as make the angels weep. Don Alvarez was determined that he, not the archbishop, should indeed, and in truth, as well as in name, be the true ruler of Milan. This pestilent priest was having things too much his own way. He was changing the lives of the citizens. He was turning them into good, practical Catholics, who led peaceful and holy existences, frequenting the sacraments, attending daily mass, and giving liberal alms. In fact, they were no longer the roistering, jovial, unregenerate people of former days. This sort of thing must not be allowed to go on. The Milanese must cease to be saints and become sinners again. With this object in view, the new governor announced that there would be a bullfight and other games in the Piazza del Duomo during the carnival. These prolics would allure the people, and, instead of going inside the Duomo to pray, they would remain outside to play. When Charles heard of it, he sternly forbade the games to be held there, under pain of excommunication. Don Alvarez was compelled to yield, but he held the spectacle in front of the castello, and he induced many of the nobles to give balls and masquerades during Lent although Charles had forbidden that such entertainments should be held during the penitential season. He even started various mummeries on holidays of obligation, and at the very hour of divine service. Death cut him short in the midst of his nefarious designs, and he passed away unregretted, and as far as we can gather, unrepentant. The king appointed Don Castiglia, Luis de Requesens, governor of Milan. He was an old friend of Charles Borromeo's, where he had been Spanish ambassador at the Vatican during the pontificate of Pius IV. Everyone rejoiced when they heard of his appointment, 
and on his arrival he was cordially welcomed by priest and people, for all thought that strife and contention were over and done with, and that in future peace, love, and harmony would reign between the civil and ecclesiastical authorities. They were the more grievously disappointed when they discovered that their hopes were but fond delusions, and that Don Luis was a far more dangerous and virulent opponent to the rights of Holy Church than either of its predecessors. Don Luis started his campaign against the ecclesiastical authority by the case of Resta, a Milanese who had a lawsuit with the nuns of Calarete, which had been for some time dragging its slow course through the ecclesiastical court, when at their governor's instigation the ministers thought fit to interfere and to defend Resta. This was a violation of the canonical law, and fell under the censure of the bull Jena Domini. The archbishop at once referred the case to Rome, writing to the Holy Father that he was willing to abide by his decision in that and in all things. Requestens did not let the grass grow under his feet, for he produced a letter written some time previously by Philip II, and addressed to the late Duke de Albuquerque. There was so much in it prejudicial to the ecclesiastical authority that the Duke had feared to publish it. Don Luis, having found it, threatened the archbishop, but in a half-playful manner, that he was about to make its contents known. Charles thought he but jested and paid no attention to him, in fact, started on his pastoral visitations. He had scarcely left Milan when Don Luis placarded copies of the document all over the city. Charles returned in haste and in his turn threatened to excommunicate the governor if he did not at once give a full, true, and particular account of the letter and explain that it bore an old date and that the king had absolutely changed his mind on the subject. Don Luis refused. Entreaties, arguments, threats failed to move him. Finally, Charles felt compelled, though sorely against his inclination, to excommunicate the governor, the chancellor, and their adherents. The governor retorted by a long manifesto against the aggressions of Charles Borromeo, and a terrible struggle ensued. Shortly afterwards, Don Luis posted a vile attack on the cardinal on the doors of several of the churches. This libel declared that Charles Borromeo was an ignorant and degraded man, incapable of fulfilling the duties of his exalted position, and that he was the originator of all the troubles and dissensions between church and state, that he was a traitor to his king and his country, and so on. Charles sent a copy of this pasquinade, as it was called, to Monsignor Castelli, writing, I enclose the pasquin. What do you say to it? You see, they have given me a pasquinade for my excommunication. Don Luis forbade the meetings of the various confraternities unless a magistrate were present. He put an armed guard round the archiepiscopal palace. He watched and spied on every member of the cardinal's household, and he did all in his power to prevent the faithful from attending divine service. He wished to make Charles a prisoner, and when he failed, he forbade anyone to accompany him or to speak to him. But Charles passed in and out with his usual quiet dignity, going and coming unconcernedly, and paying no attention to the soldiers, who were ordered to prevent his people from approaching him. As a matter of fact, these rough men were so touched by his calm, serenity, and dauntless courage that they one and all knelt before him as he passed, the cavaliers dismounting in order to do so, imploring him to bless them. In a spirit of contemptible meanness, the governor actually ordered the ancient fortress of the Borromei, the Rocca de Arona, to be seized. He sent Count Angusiolia, who was in command of the troops at Como, to take possession of the Rocca in the king's name, and to take the command from Guglio Biolci, who held it for the cardinal. For though, as we have seen, Charles had bestowed it on his uncle, Count Francis Borromeo, 
he was still looked on by everyone as the head of the house so when don luis committed this last aggression it was to charles that captain guilio volci appealed asking for instructions for he did not intend to surrender the fortress to count angosiola unless ordered to do so by charles borromeo the archbishop commanded him to give it up without delay and sent count francis borromeo to don luis to tell him that it had been quite unnecessary for him to send armed troops to take the rocca for it and everything else lands castles fiefs all the possessions of the borromei belonged to the king and charles and his uncles were willing to surrender them all to prove their loyalty and fidelity to the crown charles afterwards said to the governor it was useless for you to send an armed force you have but to say the word and the rocco di arona the castella de angera and all our other fiefs will be immediately given to the king to do what he pleases with them but in whatever concerns the church and the divine service i will make no concessions End of chapter 16